Welcome to Energy Matters, exploring awakening to your authentic self and finding purpose through mind, body, and soul. With your hosts, Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by IntuitiveVision.net and GroundedMind.com. Energy Matters listeners, welcome back to another episode. I am here with my co-host as always, Cody Edner. Hey, everybody. And we have a very special guest for you today, Paul Seelig. Welcome, Paul. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Right from his hotel room in North Carolina. Is that it? North Carolina. South Carolina. (laughs) We were making some jokes before we started recording about having the view of the bed. (laughs) There it is. By the end of the interview, we're all going to be smoking cigarettes. And just like, ah, that was great. (laughs) So I just want to start, Paul, by just reading a bit of your bio so our audience can get a sense of of some of the amazing work that you've done. Uh, So Paul is considered to be one of the foremost spiritual channels working today. Uh, Some of his written works include I Am the Word, the Book of Love and Creation, the Book of Knowing and Worth, the Book of Mastery, the Book of Truth, and the Book of Freedom. And Paul has another book coming out in August, which I would love to talk about. Uh, Paul was born in New York City and, and received his master's degree from Yale. He had a spiritual experience in 1987 that left him clairvoyant, but also love to talk about that. And Paul's work has been widely featured on a variety of media, including ABC News, Nightline, Fox News, Biography Channel, uh, Gaim TV, uh, and the documentary PGS or Personal Guidance System, who, which was created by Bill Bennett. He's also been on this show. Bill's a great guy. And as, as uh, Dean Radin has been on the show as well, he was in that film. Love that film. Uh, and Paul's also appeared on numerous radio shows and podcasts, including Aubrey Marcus's show, which me and Cody really love, uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Murray and, and Afterlife TV. Uh, and then lastly, Paul offers channel workshops internationally and he serves on the faculty of the Omega Institute, the Poly Center and Esalen, which are like my dreams to go on vacation to all of those places. <laughs> it's really nice to get to spend time in each of them. And your noted educator, Paul, served on the faculty of NYU for over 25 years. He directed the MFA and Creative Writing Program at Goddard College for many years. And he now serves on the College's Board of Trustees. And he lives in New York City, where he maintains his private practice. So with that very long but necessary intro, thanks for being here, Paul. And wow, do you have a breadth of knowledge. But I would love to just start maybe for our listeners so they can understand a bit about what it is that you do, if you could explain what it means to be uh, a spiritual channel. Well, I mean, I say that I take dictation. That's really my job. I show up, I close my eyes, I sit in the chair, I ask spirit to put the words in my mouth, and I'll hear one phrase repeated incessantly until I give it voice. And the moment I give it voice, the rest of it just keeps coming and doesn't stop until they say, stop now, please. And they dictated now, you know, seven books, seven and a half, because they're doing another one now this way. And the books are the unedited transcripts of the session. So I see what I do as a channel as sort of glorified stenography. It's not me. It's not my feel that I'm a collaborator for the work and that I'm being used and work with in my vocabulary and my memories may be invoked 
product if they want to use them. But, you know, I'm there for the teaching to come through. So channeling for me is taking dictation, at least in, in this iteration. Um, and that's what I do when I work as an intuitive, which I also do that requires interpretation. I may be getting information visually and symbol or through my body, but then I get to understand what that means through, you know, reading. And channeling really isn't reading because there's all I'm reading is what I'm speaking, and that's the words as they are given, not the words as I wish them to be or like to embellish them as. Um, that would be something different. Mm-hmm. You know, people sometimes say, you know, do you, you know, do you rewrite your books? And I go, well, it's not my book to rewrite. It's not mine. You know, it's not my, my words, not my language. So. And Paul, can you tell us a bit about how this started for you? Like, uh, was it a booming voice from the sky that came down? Was, what, what happened? How did this channel open for you? It was a process, I think. Um, I started praying when I was 25 for the first time in my life because I'd hit a real wall. Mm-hmm. And um, I was raised sort of an atheist. And I actually, the first voice I heard was telling me to get my act together, which surprised me. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it. Um, I studied a form of energy healing when I was in my early 30s. I started opening up psychically in my mid 20s. Um, and that was just seeing lights and feeling energy and knowing that there was more. And I didn't have great context. So I went to a healer to get context and then studied. And I was volunteering at a center that had opened in lower Manhattan for people with life-challenging illness. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York and places were popping up. And I found that when I had my hands on people's bodies, I began to hear things for them clairaudiently. And what that was, it wasn't a booming voice in the room. It was a thought that wasn't in my own voice. Um, it had a different texture to it that would crowd out all the other thoughts. Mm. And it wasn't a chosen thought. So if I had my hand on your belly and I heard the name Francesca, which means nothing to me, and I'd say, who's Francesca? And you'd say, well, that's my mother or my girlfriend or, you know, the teacher who told me I would never amount to anything, you know, and then the energy would move. So as I kept getting validation for the fragments that I was originally hearing, I began to trust it. And then I did a little group that met in my apartment for about 18 years, um, where people just would come put 10 bucks in the basket. I wasn't looking to be known. I was a college teacher and I had another life. But I began to channel there, and it wasn't until 2008, this group had been going on for many years, that I quit smoking. I'd been a heavy smoker for most of my adult life, and when I quit smoking, the guides actually began to lecture through me, and lecture, and lecture, and lecture, and lecture, because up until then, I was I was never very interested in the information that was coming through me. I was interested in the, in the energy, because the energy was palpable. And I figured, well, you can't fake the energy. You know, who knows what the stuff is coming out of my mouth. But if you can all, the whole room is feeling the energy. If the guide is saying, everybody, we're going to put a hand on your foreheads. And the whole room goes back like, you know, Beetlejuice. We're all going, whoa, what is this? Mm. There was something to it. So the phenomena was so interesting to me that I kept going to be participatory to the, the group feeling of the shared energy field. But when I stopped smoking, um, my senses and my clairsentience, which had been pronounced when I was younger in my 30s, my ability to sort of step into people's bodies and feel what was going on with them, that kind of went off through the roof. 
after that. And that's when the guides began dictating the book. So 2009 was when they delivered their first book. And I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know it was going to happen until two days before when they said, we have a book to write. And if you take two weeks, we'll do it. And mm. and it took two and a half weeks because I took two days off to go teach at NYU. But pretty much it was <laughs> about 14 days of dictation or something like that total. Um, and that's the work that I've been doing since. So the process of opening up to here has been in some ways a process of getting out of the way. And frankly, also a process of, I'm not going to say demolition of the ego, although sometimes it feels that way, but it really, I would suggest a restructuring in some ways of who I think I am and how I think the world is supposed to work, which seems to be predicated by my old ideas of how things should be. Um, as that moves away, I seem to be more adept at bringing through this and the energy that accompanies it. So, and the, the guides still come with this enormous energy that people can feel, and they can feel it through the books or in the workshops. I mean, it's part of the phenomena which continues to keep me, you know, moving forward with it. So, Paul, just to jump back a little bit. How did you take that first step? So when you were laying on of hands and you're getting these little fragments, how did you take that first step to start to like trust to share that with people or uh, to start to express that? Because I think a lot of people um, in our audience who are interested in this kind of work have little insights, but we're afraid to share them. We're afraid of what the repercussions might be or the judgments. And Absolutely. See, I was in a, I was working with people that basically were dying. You know, there, right. there were not a lot of censors at that moment, <clears throat> um, and it was a privilege to do that work then. And um, you know, they taught me an enormous amount. But all I was doing was giving voice to a thought that made no sense, and they would verify the thought. So. My abilities, such as they are, whatever they are, have always been developed in service of other people. Mm -hmm. It's not like I have my pipeline to spirit and I'm going to get my lucky numbers picked. It doesn't, I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't work that way. I'm there in service. So the guides that I come through, I, that come through me are teachers. So they, you know, a teacher needs a student. And I suspect for anybody who's opening up, you know, one of the things that you have to get is the verification for the accuracy of the information you're receiving. Now, the channeling stuff, which is more esoteric and more of a spiritual instruction, that comes with an energy that is almost quantifiable. You know, you can feel it, you can feel where it's directed, you can have a shared experience with another, and that helps. But when I work psychically, and I'm assuming your students that are opening up are probably also sort of opening up psychically, what was really helpful to me was to say, you know, okay, so I'm, you know, who's the, who's the guy who's always angry, who's, you know, pacing around a desk with an old electric typewriter, you know, and they go, oh, my God, that's my father. He was a writer, blah, blah, blah. So the verification is what allowed me to continue Mm -hmm. to offer it because in some ways the information that i receive psychically is not for me you know what i mean it's for the client it's for the student it's not for me so getting out of the way of having to be right is an enormous part of it because having to be right at that level i think is probably presumptuous i remember doing a reading early on 
for this woman who was having a terrible fight with her family. And during the whole reading, I kept seeing a giant wooden cable spool, you know, like this thing you'd wrap, you know, miles of cable around. And I didn't know what to make of it. And I kept thinking cable, interconnectedness, you know, things laid underground. And I said, I don't know why, but during your whole reading, I've been seeing this giant cable spool. And she said, well, that's what we're all fighting about. They charge $250 worth of movies on my cable. And I was like, oh, <laughs> for her, it made, it made perfect sense to her. I was looking for meaning and depth that had nothing to do with it. Right. You should have said, what is, it, what, what is it about the cable? <laughs> you know? Right. But she would have come back. That does seem to be one of the big challenges in reading is getting over that um, idea that it sh- what you're perceiving should make sense to you when you're reading someone else. It, it really, it is for them. And so you, you can't necessarily make sense of it all. Yeah. Mm. Paul, can you explain to some of our listeners who might be thinking like, well, uh, what does it mean to channel guide? Who are the guides? Where did these guides come from? Do they have personalities or certain styles of communication? Mm-hmm. I mean, I work with a collective, so because they use in all instances, we, you know, we are here to teach. My guides are teachers. They come with an agenda. They're teaching a system, it seems, of the realization of the divine in form, which is a kind of a radical teaching. And I didn't really know where they were going, I think, fully until like the last couple of books when I went, oh, my God, that's what this is really about. Mm-hmm. Um, there are quirks. I mean, there's only one that I've seen with some consistency, and that's mostly because I'm lazy and I don't meditate. If I meditated every day, I'm sure I'd be seeing it much more. But, you know, <laughs> the times I've seen this guy were actually during either guided meditations or under hypnosis, and I've always been sort of surprised at the consistency of how he shows up. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things the guides have said, I mean, they've defined themselves differently in different books. They said, you know, teachers, missionaries, they said ascended masters, the name that they've used the most when they use a name is Melchizedek. But I think they speak to that as a priesthood of teachers, you know, that are here to sort of bring through a teaching. It's not a new teaching, but they say this is an iteration of a teaching that's been present and been forgotten or misunderstood. The quirks are odd. There's a the fifth book that was dictated through me, the Book of Truth, which was the easiest dictation for any book. I literally, every time I sat down, I felt like somebody was sitting there and whispering in my ear, although that's I hear through here, not through the ear. But the completed text, it would, was delivered slowly, carefully, methodically, and with you know, without a, a misspoken syllable. It was such an easy dictation. Oh. This guide used the word dears a lot, which was the first time I'd heard this. I said, we would like you to know dears. Now, that's like among my least favorite words. I was like cringing every time. Oh, dears, what is this? But that was a, a, a language quirk um, of, of one of the guides. But they come through with such a clear, comparable similarity. Like you can read any of the books and the vocabulary choices and the sentence structure is pretty much always the same. You know, when I first started dictating, um, when they started dictating and I began speaking the books, there was no accent. In the second book, this accent emerged, and I was fairly horrified, as was the woman who 
was present on the phone for the initial books. Now all of the books are done and fully in front of live audiences. The last three books, oh. I think. Yeah, in front of students at retreats and okay. other places. Yeah. And we have the video record of the whole thing. I mean, it just happens this way. Um, and and in a retreat like that, they'll sometimes do four lectures in a day on the book. You know, each lecture is about half an hour each. It's an enormous amount of material. Why was I talking about this? Oh, yeah, the accent, the British accent. When it emerged, it was like, oh, no, what's this thing? And the interesting thing is, you know, with or without the accent, the cadence and the sentence structure makes perfect sense. It actually almost makes more sense with the accent, but they don't always come through with it. And I suspect that varies on who's coming through, you know, of the group, but also what's necessary initially. When the accent came through and I was doing that group in my apartment, I was always a little bit relieved because the dictation was always a bit easier. And I questioned for a period of time whether the accent was how they spoke or if they weren't creating some separation between my personality structure and how I speak and how they spoke to make it easier for me to sort of move over more fully. But I basically get, nope, that's how they speak. So, you know, so be it. I mean, the language choices in all of the books are not mine. They'll talk about my fellows, you know, you and your fellows. You know, I've never used the word fellows in my life. It's a ridiculous word, but that's mm -hmm. their language. And I just go, okay, that's how it comes. And because I'm comfortable with the language that they use, and I know that it's them when it's them, and I trust that they're of a, a high source. I'm not resistant to, to the transmission. And mm. the people who are opening up for the first time, and I'm sure you teach this, have to move into a discernment because just because it's unseen doesn't necessarily mean it's of a terribly high source. That's right. right. And, and you're mentioning something a few times that, that I would want to highlight and ask you about. It's really interesting to maybe uh, to a non-channeler too, is you, you used words like, something came through and you cringed or you don't like it. And there's there, it's an interesting dynamic to me where when you're channeling, something can, can come through that you don't really agree with. And it's a challenge to be neutral or to allow or whatever word we want to use. But I'm curious about your journey in that, uh, your journey of trusting the guides and then also finding that place where you could uh, stay neutral or allow you know, like let go of the communication. It's like you can't own it because then you're responsible for it. And then just like, ah, what do I do if I don't like it? So what was your journey in, in that growth, that aspect of, of the channel? I direct the channel. I mean, I've been known, it's in all the books. They'll say, Paul is asking, Paul has a question. Hmm. And honestly, if the guides were to say, and, and, you know, some of this has to do with the fact that I don't get to go back and correct things. Mm -hmm. in so I don't, if the guys were to say the moon is in fact made of green cheese and that were to come out of my mouth, I'm going, oh crap, <laughs> no. what am I going to do with this? So then they'd probably say, Paul was interrupting. What do you mean? You know, and then they'd have to unpack the teaching, ah. explain it further. And in almost all cases they do, because I do interrupt with some regularity in the book that they're dictating now they're talking more about time and, you know, what time is and what time isn't. And some of these teachings are really challenging for me. 
um, they defy my understanding of how the world works or what it means to age and grow older and all these things. So, you know, for the most part, they'll take the questions, but sometimes, and I actually prefer it when this happens, they'll say, Paul is interrupting, we will take his questions later. And they'll ignore it and then barrel on with the teaching, which reminds me that it's their teaching and they're in charge. And then they do come back in their own way or they'll incorporate what would have been the answer to my question in the teachings themselves without having to digress. What they started to do, which I found really smart about two books ago, was they started to anticipate my interruptions before I opened my mouth. Mm which was a way for them to keep the channeling on track and keep the book on track. So, for example, um, they would say, Paul has a question. Now, what if my, and I, and I, would, I would think, wow, I was going to ask something like that, but that's not how I would have said it. And what they've done is sort of preempt an interruption by appropriating it. And I think they did that because in, the third book, The Book of Knowing and Worth, there was a chapter that was derailed by an interruption. Like there was noise in the room, I got frustrated, you know, and I was like, let's, we, you know, and then it was like, what am I going to do? I can't go back and fix it. And the guides basically said, we're going to take this from now on. And they delivered a half hour lecture on my anger. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and dealt with it in the book. And then they said, and yes, this is in the book. And while I, I suspect it was a valid lecture, I don't know if that was necessarily the intended structure of the book. Mm. I think we had to restructure something as a result of, of what happened in that session. And now that hasn't happened since. They find a, a very elegant way to, to move through. But I, I'm allowed to question the teachings. I just can't do it. I, you know, it can't be what I want. If it's what I want, then it's not authentic channeling. You know what I mean? It just doesn't work that way. It's interesting, Paul, that your next book you said is on time. Is that right? It's not on time, but they, they're the, the book that they're delivering now, and they're just a, maybe three quarters of the way through since they've been doing this in sessions, in public sessions I've been conducting since you know, March. So it's, it's probably a few hundred pages already. It's a book on alchemy, actually. Yeah. That's, how, that's what they're teaching, but alchemy seems to be a realization of, of what matter is and how consciousness informs matter and how things can be lifted if you move past the narrative that you give everything. So if this is what I know time to be and I have this narrative around time that I've inherited and I'm describing all this power to, I'm perpetuating the known. If I understand time as an idea and a concept, first and foremost, I can actually align to it in a very different way, which is without ascribing all the meaning that it's had. But the guides would say the same thing is true about a bank. We all know what a bank is and what a bank means and the narrative of what banking is. And you can't re-know or recreate the bank when you're continuing to invest in what it, you believe it should be or has been based on prior history. So they're talking about how a world is, is made new now, and that they say is an alchemical process, not, you know, about what we think should be there, because all we think should be there is what we've known. We don't have a context for what else it might be. That's fascinating. So I was, uh, a few hours before we started the show, I, I took a jog. I live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I was taking a run around the block, and I 
all of a sudden I felt this little bit of stress of time, like, oh, I'm doing this thing with Paul and, and then and Cody are teaching a class later. And I realized, oh, I'm fighting time. There's like this tension between me and time. And I wonder if Paul is going to bring up time. <laughs> That's great that that came up. Maybe we can go into that just a, a little bit deeper and what your guides have been telling you about time. And for the people you know, listening to this who maybe have had similar experiences like, oh, I feel like my whole life I'm fighting time. Every day I wake up, there's not enough time. Death is coming closer. How do I, from a higher level of consciousness, begin to you know, have a relationship with time that isn't so adversarial? Well, I mean, time is now. It's a, Time is our prescription of what now is. And all there really is is now. There's the eternal now. And we're the one that break it up into months and days and hours and, and seconds. So the guides teach something. They call it the upper room, which I guess is to hear them say it. It's really the level of Christ consciousness or a level of vibrational knowing that sort of bypasses what they say this octave is. The guides don't talk about dimensions, really. They talk about octaves as a music. And they say, we're existing right now in a collective octave. You know, this is what our reality is. And these are the notes played that comprise our reality and the meaning that things have been given as part of this shared construct of this octave. Now, they're inviting us now and teaching us how to go to the next octave above, the higher octave, they say. They call it the upper room. But you can't go to the upper room when you're sort of bringing all of your old crap and narrative with you. But they talk about how everything exists in multiple octaves, and I would suggest even our understanding of time. Although I'm saying that right now, I don't know if that's in the text or not. So they say every note can be played. Say you can play the note C above and above and above and scale into infinity. And just because you can't hear it with your ears doesn't mean the note can't be played there. So what they're talking about doing in their languages is they're transposing the music of our reality, transposing our understanding of what can be in a level of vibration. Now, it sounds abstract until you begin to feel it or experience it, and then it makes sense. So, for example, the guides say in the upper room where they teach, they say there's no fear. And in the upper room, you're in your knowing. Now, they say, you know, when you're in your knowing, and true knowing, which is, you know, they say when you know, there's never a question, you know, because you know. And also, and you can test this for yourself, when you know, there's never fear. Knowing and fear don't really coexist. I mean, if somebody says to me, you've got a terrible medical diagnosis, that's not the frightening information. The information is, oh, my God, am I going to die? Or, oh, my God, is the treatment going to hurt? It's all about projection outside of the current moment. And they say, you can only know now. Knowing happens in the present moment. You can't try to know. You didn't know yesterday. You won't know tomorrow. You can only know now. And the true self, they say, or the divine self expresses now, in the infinite now, they say. The infinite now is the purview of the divine self, which actually bypasses the rules of the collective agreement to what things should be, what time is even. Do you understand? Am I just being yes. too far out there? Okay, good. Yeah. That's great. You know, when you're, you're talking about the upper room or that as an octave or a energy vibration, do you find when 
you're channeling and, and doing this in a room that, that starts to bring, the guides start to bring the, the room or the people up into these higher vibrations. What's your experience of that? I mean, that's probably the power of it in, in that moment. It's instantaneous. I mean, they yeah. put that in workshops now is they just have, I mean, there's a little meditation that they do to, to bring people to the upper room. But now often it's not, they'll just have the whole room say, I'm in the upper, to claim I'm in the upper room. And then bang, you can feel the energy just feel it go up. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then things get to happen. Now I'm at this hotel, which is kind of a resort. And I think they're doing happy hour, disco hour outside. <laughs> I don't hear it. It's okay. I don't hear it, but. If you start dancing, we'll know why. That's right. <laughs> Back to the bed by that. <laughs> so, Paul, you're on this teaching tour right now. You're, you're doing a lot of traveling. I was looking at your schedule. It's pretty robust. When you travel to all of these different places around the planet, are you noticing a common theme that people are going through? Something that they're working on. It's been falling apart. I have to <laughs> last month. Everybody's like going, and me too. You know, everybody's going, what the hell is this? You know, and I suspect it's all productive um, in the long term. I just don't think mm-hmm. anything comfortable. So I've been noticing that recently. I don't think it's just my workshops. I think it's life right now. What people are seem to be moving through. But no, I mean, what I notice now, and maybe it's that my work is a little bit more known, but, you know, when I first started doing this um, publicly, um, people weren't moving as quickly with the energy. And now I can have, you know, I did a, a workshop in, what was it? It was Minneapolis about a week and a half ago. And there were a couple of hundred people there. And everybody felt the energy because the guides work with attunement. So they attune the people there to work with the energy that comes through. And in the old days, you know, you'd feel, you know, there was resistance. Was this real? Whatever. Now it's just so palpable that everybody goes, yes, I feel it. Mm. I don't know if that's a testament to the guides that work with me as much as the fact that people are really have been prepared for this kind of change, you know, and, you know, I mean, this is, this is far out stuff, I know, but less far out, I suspect, than it used to be perceived as, and I'm grateful for that. I was in the closet with this stuff for a long time, you know, trying to keep life in academia somewhat, um, you know, stable. And I finally just gave up, you know, this is what I do and this is what I'm doing now publicly. And But I'm also realizing that the level of resistance that was there to this kind of thing and also to one's own ability to open up their receptors to a higher way of knowing is much less than it used to be. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So people are opening up more, but it also feels like things are falling apart more. It does. I mean, it just does. It's structures that we know seem to be falling apart. Do you say that's part of the process now? You mean like the political structures, economic structures? Yeah, I do get that. I mean, the guide said about three years ago, and they were delivering this book called um, The Book of Truth. They said what's happening now is um, the equivalent to an archaeological dig. And they say everything that has been buried five months ago or 5,000 years ago is getting exhumed. Mm-hmm. 
and it's getting it zoomed so that it can be seen. And then you can bring the light to it so it can be healed. Um, it's not a punishment, but it, it, you know, it feels like it some days. But they say if you look at a backyard or you look at an archaeological dig, you know, in a backyard, it's a mess. It looks like a mess for a period of time. And that's sort of, I suspect, what we're contending with a bit now. Um, the guides have said this. They said this in their very first book, which was called I Am the Word. They said humanity is a time of reckoning. And a reckoning is a facing of oneself and all of one's creations. And what's been created in fear needs to be recreated in a higher way. And a lot of the stuff that we were sort of living with, I suspect, perhaps has its real basis in control and fear. And these are things that need to be renowned. The process of undergoing this passage just may not be terribly graceful because we're leaving a status quo and we don't see what the new is yet. And I'm hopeful for this, the guides say, to be hopeful, but um, I don't think it's necessarily terribly comfortable. It's like growing up. It's like, you know, puberty, adolescence. I mean, you're coming out differently. The process, if you can remember it, isn't all that graceful. <laughs> yeah. Cody's going through it right now. <laughs> yeah, it happens to him. Hair growing everywhere. It's... <laughs> Well, that's not puberty. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, this evolutionary process, beyond just a step up in vibration, which just we see happening, or a step up in consciousness, there's different ways we can can speak to that idea, uh, kind of the awakening of humanity. What what do the guides have to say about the future of that, or what? where we're kind of headed, what, what we're looking for, how that might manifest in, in our lives. I mean, they're dictating a book, you know, as we speak, I'm on, you know, I, I haven't, I didn't do a workshop last week and finally after doing a bunch in a row and I will be doing one this coming weekend where I expect they'll continue But the, the, the chapter that they paused on is titled humanity at a crossroads. And they say, yeah. we're right now that's where we stand. <laughs> But they're also saying, you know, there's certain things that they say all the time. They say, you know, you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. And, you know, what you damn damns you back. And, you know, they're teaching us to move beyond separation. But they say, if you can't get it right with your neighbor, don't expect to get it right at the larger level, you know. So um, I suspect we're going to be challenged to sort of re-know, re-see, re-understand who we are to one another as part of this passage, because for the most part, we're horrific to one another, you know, country to country, you know, this whole idea of, you know, I mean, the guides say, you know, there is no human being who is higher than the next. It's just not possible. You know, we do this. This is our stuff. So, I, I hear that they wouldn't be teaching, you know, us if we weren't going to make it. So I hear we're going to make it. I do hear that. But I hear that humanity is at a transitional stage where we really have to step up to something higher. Because they said, you know, they say the action of fear is to claim more fear. They say, look at every choice you've ever made because you were afraid and see what it got you. It probably got you more fear. And they say, you know, the idea that we can build a bomb 
as um, as a way to stay safe is insane. Right. If you think about it, let's build a nuclear bomb so we can be safe. It's insane, but that's the insanity that we've come to in fear. So, you know, I don't get that that's going to happen. I hope it's certainly not going to happen. They're not telling me it is. They don't teach fear and they don't teach gloom and doom, but they do teach that we have to be responsible for our actions and how we treat people. And this is true individually, and it's also true collectively. And we have work to do there, clear work. We definitely have work to do there. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. And what about you as an individual, Paul? So you're you're traveling, you're teaching, you're spending large portions of your day channeling, right? So you're almost, I'm not sure exactly how you experience it, but on some level, an observer of this whole thing. Uh, does that get tiring? And I guess there's a few questions in there, but the main one is just like, what is, I'm sure, I know I have this question, a lot of people listening, like, what is Paul's experience during this whole thing? Is he getting exhausted? Is he learning? Is he growing? Is he like, enough already? Go to the next guy. How, how is that for you, just on a human level? It's, you know, I'm not going to say it's easy. I mean, yeah. I expect that having a job that, you know, pays me well, where I sit in a chair, close my eyes, and take dictation. I don't have a right. I don't have anything to complain about there. You know, I mean, I did it for 10 bucks in a basket for 18 years, so I'm, I would be doing a bill for that. I did it that way before. I probably would continue. Um, it's challenging for me because I don't always feel like the best student of the work that comes through me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the book that they're dictating now has really been, I've been sort of turned inside out by the process of it so much so. And this isn't the book that's coming out in August. This will be out in another year. It's the book on alchemy. And this is the book I'm going, boy, I hope everybody who reads this book doesn't have to go through this because this isn't necessarily comfortable. But I'm aware that what I'm being asked to do now is let go at a fundamental level of my idea of who I am. And that's the personality structure as the primary source of self-identification. <laughs> and the guides say, you know, the personality is real. It has a place, but it's not who anyone truly is. It's a way to know the self and it's the mask. And what they're talking about now is what happens when the mask comes off. And when the mask is off, you actually see <clears throat> what it's been hiding which is all that stuff we prefer not to look at. So that's kind of where I'm getting to go right now. And that's not necessarily great fun. I'm suspecting it will prove to be highly valuable. Um, But the work itself, you know, I was a classroom teacher for 25 years. I loved every minute of it. I was very good at it. And I miss the community that I had in academia, which was constant for me. And now I work with... You know, it's a little bit like being an itinerant minister. You go from town to town, the people that you see every year. But it's a very different experience for me, and in some ways a lonelier one than I was used to. But I've been, you know, blessed for the most part with good support in what I do. So I, you know, have people that I work with and, and all of that. But the work itself is physically taxing, mostly on my nervous system. And when I channel as much as I did recently, I did three seven to ten day events sort of back to back i mean i had 
a week off between them. But, you know, when I'm, I was doing a book, so I was channeling, you know, five hours a day sometimes. And, you know, it took its toll. And, it you know, then I feel, and you may know this, I mean, I have a, a medium friend who calls it psychic burn, but it's like having a sunburn where your nerves are sort of, you know, frayed from the inside. And I'm just now, you know, feeling like, good, I'm back, I can sleep. You know, I'm not feeling quite so sensitive to to every sound. I mean, right now when I'm in that place, <clears throat> somebody drops a spoon in the next city, I'm probably going to jump because you know, and um, and yeah. that's all it can take. It's like you're channeling such a high vibration; your body can only take so much of it. Do you find your guides help you in your growth process, aside from the channeling part? But like in your relationship to them while you're out. Um, do they help you in, in getting through some of this deeper yeah, stuff? They do. And I, yeah. you know, I'm blessed to have a good support system. Um, you know, I have some dear friends who work as, you know, you both work and as I work. So I have, you know, I think that's important to have. Absolutely. Into this stuff. Um, but I, yeah, the guides pretty much are there for me and I do believe they have my back. And I do believe that their teaching, which is everything that we encounter, is an opportunity to learn. I say you can't be a master and a victim at the same time. And so that reframes my experience a bit about what I go through and to find the opportunity to learn. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I get all that. And I do feel cared for through it. You know, but it's an odd phenomena, you know, to do this so much. And also, you know, I don't know how it works. I don't know the science behind channeling. Other people, I suspect, do. You teach it. I don't know how to teach it. I don't even know how it began. I just know that it happens. Cody, tell us how it happens. (laughs) (laughs) In one one sentence or less. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, it is, I think it's not that dissimilar than waking up your psychic abilities because it is another ability. So it does start to turn on in people and it, it really depends on how they relate to it on what happens next. There are many people that get frightened by that first psychic insight and they retract and turn it down, which is why I asked you about how you broke through to start to share uh, those ideas. And I love your answer of when you're in a space that's where someone's dying, all the pretenses are off and it is just real and raw and, and why not share it? You know, why not kind of just open up uh, in such a deep level and such an intimate level. Uh, but, but definitely it, it turns on in people. And, and of course, David and I, we work to help people start to manage that process of turning on say their to their psychic uh, energies or their psychic self um you know that's where we start with people i usually we work with people in terms of a, a channeling octave if you will or vibration after they've kind of found themselves a little bit in that psychic sense of managing their own energy and their own uh oh kind of clairsentience because if we open up too much that way, the world can become overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, we make it a process that tries to keep it safe so that people don't get turned off by the fear or, or kind of run away from it. Uh, but there's still this challenge where growth, it, it's not easy. 
It is not an easy path. Everybody thinks, oh, it's all woo-woo spiritual, so it's easy and we're just happy. And it's like, no, no, no. We're confronting the real stuff and we're getting down in the muck and, and it, it's, it could be hard. And I mean, that's why we have phrases like dark, dark night of the soul or dealing with the shadow. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. So it's great to hear you speak so candidly about what you're experiencing in the process. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm not a guru. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want that. Right. And that allows me to be, to show up as I can. And this is the only way I know how to show up. You know, I'm not trying to pretend I'm someone or something that I'm not. I, I think I thought when I first started that I was supposed to have everything answered. And the more I do this, the less I know, I have to say, you know, mm-hmm. the less I really know, because it's... The moment I think I know, you know, all the answers, I'm about with a big lesson. That's right. So. That's so true. I teach a lot of uh, beginners. Uh, some classes I teach in person here in LA, it'll like sometimes a third of the room is their first meditation class ever, and the class is called Psychic. <laughs> I find that hilarious that they come in for their first class <laughs> for that. And I always like to joke, like, oh, just pop a quarter in David and you'll get your answer. Uh, but my real job and what I always tell them is I teach you how to develop your own abilities so that you can get your own answers because I will not be here tomorrow or when you wake right. up or when someone breaks up with you or your bank account is empty and uh, you have to really develop into yourself so you can long term you know, find your path and live a purposeful and deep life and most people hear that and they're like okay but then they don't do anything or they do just a little bit, you know, just just enough, just enough. Are yeah. you finding, Paul, that your students, uh, after they're listening to the channeled work or getting healing, are they following through? Is there a structure and a path for them laid out by your guides? The books are teachings. You know, yeah. the books really are the teachings. I don't think I need to be there. You know, there's something about doing a workshop in person where you can feel the energy in a room full of other people and have that experience, which I think is very validating for people and their own ability to feel energy. And they often, you know, they open up, they can, you know, see energy, things like that happen all the time. But I don't, you know, I don't think that I'm the essential piece, but I do think that the teaching is they're, they're building blocks, you know, to where they're taking us. I don't think that you need to necessarily read all the books to be able to get where they're going. But I think that they've dictated these things in order. And I know for a fact that they wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to bring through the stuff that they're bringing through now because I couldn't held it. It was, it was too much. You know, when they were speaking in the very first book and they, they said this thing, they use the word Christ often in their teachings and their definition of Christ is the aspect of the creator that can be realized in material form. You know, the divine seed that seeks to flower and express as who and what we are. And, you know, in the first book, they said, you know, the Christ in humanity or Christ in man is an event that happens. And I'm going, well, that's nice. But I still thought they just meant, you know, we get to be nicer to each other, a little more spiritual, you know, have some better days. And they're really talking about what they talk about. They, they call it their rearticulation of form of manifestation, the divine as form, the realization of the divine as who and what you are. Um, And it's quite something to begin to experience. 
But if that's true, it means that we don't get the luxury of claiming who we think we are, which is the transitional nature of, you know, age, personality, gender, sexuality, religious upbringing, all those are ways of being in the world and ways of knowing the self. But that's not who we truly are. They're saying who we truly are is far more than that. And they're bringing or supporting us in the realization of that or the coming into that in fullness. Um, so that's how I get it. Can, uh, can we ask a couple of deep spiritual questions before we finish today, Paul, while we have, while we have you here? Do your guides, <laughs> hopefully yes, <laughs> do, uh, do your guides talk about what life is like after we leave the physical body? Just a bit. I mean, you know, I'm not a spiritual medium. They call me a medium for the living, which is an odd thing. Mm -hmm. So I can hear the guides, and that's a spiritual level of work. And I can hear, if you're, if you're not talking to your sister, I can tune into your sister. I may start to look like her, because I do. I take on the whole persona and demeanor. And when I step into people, I can hear her. But people that have crossed, I don't always come through. It's like it's a different radio station for me. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they, they have actually come through more with more regularity lately, but it's not what I call my work. So what I hear is, yeah, we're basically slipping out of one envelope with another vibratory field. It's, you mm -hmm. know, we're still learning. It doesn't end. You know, I mean, that's what happens. This idea of of heaven as a final resting place, I suppose that may be true, but I experience it somewhat differently, which is we have an opportunity to learn about what we've been through and what we are still learning, needing to know, and then we get to come back and, and continue to progress. So that's my understanding, um, but that's not their teaching. I mean, there are plenty of people, but that's their work, and I would defer to them. Mm. Just to follow up with that, when you say we're kind of here to learn something, do you, do the guides say, and do you find that uh, the soul essence of a person has decided when I'm born in this lifetime, you know, I'm going to have these traumas unfold, or I'm going to have this loss, and I'm going to learn these lessons. Do you experience that as something that we intend or decide on before we incarnate? I, I've been told that we choose our lessons. Yes, we come with a specific thing to, but with specific things to learn, and we where you call those opportunities to learn those things to us. I also suspect we can probably learn them in different ways. I think sometimes we learn the hard way, mm. <laughs> not listening to the other opportunities to learn the lesson. So I still believe that we have choice. I, the guides say we have free will. You know, they often ask for permission in order to be able to move us forward, you know, in certain ways. They're not going to override free will. They don't tell people what to do. They don't tell me what to do. I often say, you know, if I want to walk into traffic, they'll let me. But if I say or ask, is this the, the best time to cross the street? They'll they'd say, they might say not wise, which means it's still my choice, but I'll get counsel. So I do feel that, yes, we sign on for things. And, um, and they become our opportunities. It's how we frame them through our understanding of what good is or bad is that I think colors our understanding of this. So the guides say, you know, the, 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 the wealthy man and the beggar are both learning lessons of abundance. They're just different lessons. One isn't higher than the next, and certainly the human being isn't higher than the 
next. But there's still the lessons that can be learned in different ways through different opportunity. So that's how I understand it. I love that. What do you think about that, Cody? <laughs> no, I, I definitely like that. Um, I, there's a question that, that I want to ask that I heard um, the guides maybe speak to a little bit. And, and it kind of has to do with this evolutionary idea that we're growing and evolving, which, which is kind of self-evident. We're in an evolving world and, and we seem to be uh, reaching for higher and higher ideals. But uh, I have a question about looking backwards. Um, have they spoken to like past civilizations and, and ideas of where we've come from um, relative to where we're going? Just in a general sense, truthfully. I mean, they say we're much older than we think or have been told. They say that the teaching that they're bringing through is that old. It's just been misunderstood or buried or, you know, mis you know I'm, I'm basically appropriated, you know, by what is now world religion mm -hmm. um, the distorted ways. But they say truth is truth. What is true is always true. And so they do talk about this, but are they talking about Atlantis Lemuria by name? No, they're not. They're not. Okay. They haven't yet. They may, they may have in one of the books, but I don't recall that. They're pretty specific about what they don't talk about. I've never heard them, you know, at least in their books, mention a, a, a figure from pop culture, you know, or politics. They don't. Oh. They're teachable, and they don't talk about science in specific ways because they say the language of science is of the time we sit in, and they say the teaching that they're bringing through actually is eternal, and the language of science, they say, will be outmoded in 100 years as we continue to progress. So they're not sort of, you know, ratcheting it. I mean, the guys I work with, I don't even know, you know, they call a computer a TV, you know? Like I'm saying, am I going to hear from so and so? Yes, on 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 the TV. So, you know, that's that's their level of you know data technology. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Last question, Paul. <laughs> Is there one overarching kind of spiritual message that, through all the years of channeling, you found that they've been very consistent with that you think if you could only leave humanity with one message, uh, it would be it would be this. Is there something that they just always come back to? Well, the two, I've said the things that they've said the most. You know, you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. Mm. With the height of hypocrisy and the challenge I think we face with most religions right now and many issues of politics as well. What you damn damns you back is the same thing. And that, you know, the action of fear is to claim more fear. And, you know, if I look at my life that way and I simply don't take actions based in fear, I'm going to have a much better life, you know, but we're taught to be fearful and we're taught to mistrust and we're taught to hate, you know, we're taught these things. And there are the, the fear shows up in different ways, whether it's greed or, you know, you name it. So uh, that to me has helped me as much as anything else, because as I can continue to do my best with that, I live a better life. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Paul. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And for all of those of you who are listening and you want to find uh, more of Paul's work, you can go to paulseelig.com. He also has a weekly class that he teaches on Wednesdays 
hey, that happens to be the day of my weekly class. <laughs> Good day. <laughs> and uh, what else, Paul? I'm missing something I want to mention. There's a new book out. Thank it's you. Beyond, Beyond the Known Realization. It's out August 6th. It's got an introduction by Aubrey Marcus. And uh, that's up for pre-order now on you know Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all that stuff. Okay. Very very cool and you've got you've got films you've got so many books there's so much of paul's work you can explore i've watched a ton of your videos on youtube so he is out there doing the work i could tell you are a spiritual warrior paul so thank you so much for being here with us on the energy matters podcast we really appreciate your light your time your energy and um thank you all so much for listening take care thank you both for having me thank you paul You've been listening to the Energy Matters Podcast with Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by IntuitiveVision.net and GroundedMind.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud.com.